0: Richard Norman is a professor of moral philosophy at the University of Kent and the author of On Humanism. This is Richard Norman. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to *Dunk Tank. All right. Uh, I'm here with Richard Norman. Uh, thank you for joining me today. you very much. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about humanism in particular uh, and the consequences of that uh, in today's world. Uh, and I wanted to, to sort of calibrate this discussion by asking, first off, uh, do you ever feel like these days where people say that we're living in a post-truth environment, uh, a lot of people are kind of sick of being human or sort of look at humans with disgust. Um, Do you feel like humanism, as a humanist, you're sort of like sitting in the bunker these days?
1: Well, there's a lot of different questions there, aren't there? Um, I mean, there's there's, I suppose, a certain degree of pessimism about human capacities. And I suppose the sense in which that links up with the idea of living in a post-truth environment is, but people have a sense that, in the, at least in certain, cir- certain circles and in certain um, parts of society, there's an increasing contempt for the whole idea of truth. Yes. And I suppose that that links up with what you were saying about um, people feeling, people losing faith in humanity, if you like. But I guess the conclusion I draw from that is that it emphasizes all the more strongly the need for humanism and the importance of a humanist perspective to stand up for the sorts of things that human beings. Are capable of when they use their capacities to the full does that make sense
0: yeah no i mean fair enough so let's for people who who are walking in this totally blind uh why is this called humanism i mean that seems like a, a lofty title for a philosophy
1: well um there's no simple definition of humanism but the way i would like to define it is in terms of relying for our values and for our decisions about how we want to live on what it is to be human, on our distinctively human capacities, and not looking for some non-human, supernatural, or superhuman source of inspiration and source of values.
0: Fair enough. And when we're talking about Uh, superhuman or supernatural Mm -hmm. I assume you're referring to things like a belief in the creator god yes
1: yes that's right I don't like um, don't like to define humanism in too negative a way I mean historically I think too many humanists have tended to identify humanism simply with a rejection of religion but I think it's important to go beyond that try to do justice to what it is about human beings that provides a basis for how we're to live, um, rather than just saying, well, we don't believe in a deity and we don't think that one can therefore rely on any kind of divine providence or um, revealed truth to, to tell us what to believe and how to live.
0: And, and on that same note, mm-hmm. one of my first exposures to humanism, um, along with your work, was the during college um the um when we could gather together um mm-hmm. yes it's these uh sort of secular humanist uh it, it was called uh like secular student society and it Correct. was in some yes. ways trying i don't want to say replacing religion but at least replacing the community mm-hmm. aspect of it yes um, people gathering are, are you in t- in touch with that world at all
1: yes yes certainly um i am a member of our local humanist group. Um, As you know, I um, live in the UK in in Canterbury, um, in in the county of Kent, and we have a group called Kent Humanists and we we meet once once a month to talk about humanism and to talk about larger issues and to talk about a humanist perspective on them. And yes, it does, it it meets an important need. Again, I think it's important not to ape the rituals and practices of religion, um, as I suppose, especially in the in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, some um, some people in the humanist movement, the ethical mu- movement, as it was often called then, tended to try to sort of replicate quite closely um, right. what the Christian churches had to, had to offer. I think um, um, most humanists wouldn't see humanism in that way now, but Um, it is important, yes, for humanists to feel that they are part of a a community of like-minded people, I think. Of course, the need for community is met in all sorts of ways, uh, and although religious communities have traditionally played an important part in that respect, um, not everybody who's non-religious will feel the need to meet up with fellow humanists, even if that's how they describe themselves. But nevertheless, I think it, it serves an important function, definitely. And I'm interested to hear that you you discovered humanism partly in that way. Mm.
0: Yes. And, and when you said we're not trying to replace the rituals of religion and so mm-hmm. on, I, I read this bio, or not biography, but um, book 12, 12 Who Ruled, uh, about the French Revolution, and they talk oh, yes, about... Yeah. How- they they're, they started uh, replacing churches with like prayers to you know human values, and it was clearly trying to ape that.
1: Yes, and, that's right. Well, the Pantheon in Paris was uh, created, built as a kind of secular temple, wasn't it? With um, I mean, the most extreme version of that was a bit later than the French Revolution, but the um the French famous French philosopher Auguste Comte uh, created an uh, a whole set of elaborate rituals. Um, uh, trying to replicate everything about Christianity in, the, in a way um, to a most ludicrous degree. That, the famous humanist philosopher John Stuart Mill Mills said of him, uh, he was clearly a man who was incapable of laughter
0: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> um, because of the ludicrousness of, 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 of what he devised. Um, so that's the sort of thing I have in mind, yes. Um, uh, and you're right, that you know, the French Revolution, it renamed all the months and um, um, uh, created its secular saints and so on. I yeah. think, I think yeah. we, we, we've grown beyond that, I would say.
0: And, and on, um, in this similar vein, when we're talking about, I, I do you feel like there's a, a, a human need that everyone has that religion fills for a lot of people and that even if it's not a sort of one-to-one imitation uh, that yeah. humanism ought to, if it's going to be uh, successful or meaningful for people's mm-hmm. lives ought to also fulfill?
1: Yes, yes, I do actually, yes. Um, I mean, it's foolish to, um, if you reject religious belief, it's foolish to see it as some kind of giant aberration. Clearly, every human society um, has had religious beliefs and religious practices. Um, and that's no accident and it clearly religion has always met very very deep human needs Uh, and I think it's incumbent on humanists to to think seriously about that to think about what those needs are and not just to be blasé about it and and say oh we've left all that behind so we don't need to don't need to worry about it so yes absolutely and I suppose I mean you've talked about the need for community and I think particularly it's a community of of shared values. Right. Um, it's not so much beliefs. I mean, a lot of humanists tend to treat religions as a set of doctrines and beliefs, and to suppose that um, um, that their task is to somehow debunk those beliefs, and that's it. But as as you as you imply. I think um, religion goes much deeper than that. For most, for, a, for I would say the majority of people, um, religion is not primarily about a set of beliefs. I mean, the, um, the, the, the three terms that are often used to characterize the role of religion are um, um, uh, believing, uh, belonging, and behaving. And the belonging and the behaving behaving are at least as important, if not more important than the believing for most religious people, I think. So, yes, those those aspects, it's very important to take seriously, I think.
0: And and in terms of the differences, I suppose, uh, I imagine this is true in the UK. I know it's true for where I'm coming from, but that uh, Christianity tends to be the most dominant uh, religion. Yes. And Mm. while I don't think Christ was like this, I think that Christianity as a religion um, even with just the image of Jesus on the cross, mm. literally glorifies suffering. Um, oh,
1: that's interesting. Mm. Mm. But mm.
0: what about humanism? Does it treat it the same way? It
1: certainly it doesn't glorify suffering. Yeah. Um, I think one needs to be careful about, well, about any generalizations about religion or, or specific religions, really. I mean, there's a strand in Christianity that does seem to glorify suffering, you know, certain kinds of depictions of the crucifixion uh, uh, and so on. Um, uh, But at the same time, you know, I know a lot of Christians who are very positive in their outlook, who are inspired by the resurrection in a way that that a lot of them interpret in um, um, symbolic or metaphorical terms as a belief in new life um, uh, and a belief in the way in which that sense of new life can inspire people to make the world a better place so um i mean over the years i've come to think that within any of the major world religions you can find as great a diversity of attitudes and positions as you can in humanity at large so describing it as glorifying suffering is yes as i say it's true of certain strands in christianity right. but i wouldn't want to hold it in that sort of way i don't think a-
0: absolutely and i'm i'm for the record i'm not anti-religious or yeah. anti-christian or anything along those lines i i still i, I love reading the bible um oh, but, yes that's
1: interesting yes so do i yes
0: yeah <laughs> what what do you like about it a lot of people i have, have to
1: have to confess in part um i'm one of those people who loves the language of the king james bible I don't know whether you, you use that, but, but some, there's something about early 17th century English. It's the language of Thomas Hobbes and the late Shakespeare and so on. There's something something terribly rich about it. Um, but um, yes, again, I mean, the, the, you know, the Bible is an incredibly diverse set of different forms of literature. Um, and it, it's, it, you know, it's a strange mixture. It's a strange mixture. I love actually one one of the one of the the books of the Bible that that um, that I'm particularly fond of is the the first book of Genesis. And if you read Genesis like a kind of epic poem, analogous to Homer's Iliad, say you you, you don't go for any of this nonsense of it being a literal description of of creation or whatever, but just this this wonderful sequence of stories and narratives which. Um, exhibit so many different dimensions of human life. I mean, if you just start with the story of the fall uh, and the way in which it points to that complex relationship between human consciousness, human self-consciousness, sexuality, work, gender relations. Um, I mean, you know, it's an incredibly rich story and one can find a a lot of um, insight in it. Once you you learn, as some Christians do, to, to read it in the right sort of way as a story. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, definitely. And I, that's. Do you think that's part of the reason why it's still? Uh, I mean, it, it's interesting that all of the great religions, uh, it, mm. maybe like without Buddhism, I mean, there's some there, but are founded mm. on great literature as well, like yes. the Quran, yes. you know, the yes. Bible, etc. Yes. Well, yes. Well, why, why do you, do you think that says something uh, maybe about humanism and the direction that it can go? I mean, I don't, I'm not, do, are there any great works of humanist literature? Would it? If, well, if it that's, that's an interesting enough?
1: question. Yeah, there are, I mean, there, I wouldn't say, they're not exactly great works of humanist literature, but I would say that it's important for humanists to, as it were, reclaim you know, the great traditions of world literature as sources of humanist ideas. I mean, some of them written by great humanists. Um, uh, I've been been thinking particularly recently about the humanist novel, if you like, and and some of the the classics of the English novel. I'm going to be rather parochial about the English novel and think of it as the novel written in England and not just in English now.
0: Fair enough.
1: Um, Though we can find US examples as well, but, uh, great novelists like George Eliot, writer of Middlemarch, Thomas Hardy, uh, Virginia Woolf. Um, you know, they, they, these were people who were quite clearly humanists. They didn't necessarily use the word, word, word humanism, but they were pioneers of a humanist way of thinking. Quite, quite un- un- undoubtedly, looking for, you know, um, very explicitly seeing um, religious belief as a projection of. Um, human needs and human values uh, and writing their novels in in that vein. I guess, you know, if we wanted an American um, uh, example, I guess I see Steinbeck as a great humanist an explicitly humanist writer. The Grapes of Wrath, I think, is a great humanist novel. Um, And and, in calling them humanist novels, I'm not saying they're exclusively humanist. They are a treasure for all human beings. And I think that's characteristic of uh, of humanism, that what humanists value are the things that we share as human beings rather than something exclusive and specific to humanists.
0: So what are, on that note then, there's a famous line in uh, Dostoevsky's uh, The Brothers Karamazov, where... Uh, one of the characters says like if there is no god then all is permitted why should we be moral at all um
1: because uh as human beings we live in human communities our lives are shaped by our relationships to other human beings our identity is created by our relationships to other human beings um and It's no accident that it's a deep feature of human beings that they have this capacity for empathy with other people's experiences. Now, of course, um, all too often, human beings fail to act on that, fail to act on their recognition of other people's needs or other people's suffering or whatever. But um, it's nevertheless, uh, we are social beings. This This is a way of thinking about how we ought to live—a way of thinking about ethics which goes right back, as so, so much in humanism, goes back in the Western tradition to, um, uh, to Aristotle and the Greek thinkers. Aristotle famously said, um, "Human beings are social animals." Um, sometimes translated as "political animals," but what Aristotle means by that is social. We live in communities. Um, and you you find the same idea in 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 other world traditions as well. In Confucianism, for example, it's very strong that recognition of the social nature of human existence.
0: And what mm-hmm. about w- when you remove the element of some higher authority looking over mm-hmm. your shoulder? And mm-hmm. We're talking about morality being centered on the fact that we're living in communities and so on. Mm-hmm. What about um, crimes or wrongdoings? Uh, Whose uh, a f- bad effect is only um, seen if they're like discovered. In other words, like someone cheating on their wife. Yes, um, mm-hmm. it. it you, mm-hmm. Couldn't you make an argument that hey, as long as you don't, uh, as long as you're like the ethical thing to do would be okay. Go ahead and cheat mm-hmm. on your wife because it makes you happy, mm-hmm. but yes. and, and it makes the person you're cheating on with uh, happy as well. Let's say, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and as long as. Uh, you're hiding it successfully, like the ethical yes. thing to do is to become a good liar. Why is that wrong?
1: Well, as people, of course, would classically say, and you don't need humanism to tell you this, um, because of what it's doing to your relationship with the person that you're betraying, right. why that relationship matters to you and what you lose if you lose what's valuable in that relationship and how it helps to shape your life. Um, and... Um, I, th- you know, I think that way of talking about it would go for huge dimensions of human life. But, um, and that's what I mean by talking about human beings as social beings, that uh, our relationships with other people are not just external to us. They're not just a matter of you know, finding it um, convenient to benefit other people in the hope that they will benefit us, that sort of tit-for-tat idea. Okay. Um, our relationship to other people um, is what gives a sense and a meaning and a purpose to our lives is not just something external to us. I mean, it's it's interesting that when um, you know, when people allude to the Dostoevsky quote um, and um, you know, when they imply, without the constraints of religion, uh, people would just act purely selfishly. What what they forget is that. Quite often, when people act badly, it's not because they're being selfish, it's because of the importance of their relationships to them. You know, people will do, you know, someone who, who is being unfaithful to his wife and, uh, uh, and takes a lover will do terrible things for the sake of their lover. Um, someone who, um, you know, notoriously you know, people will will commit terrible crimes in the name of their communities, their nationality, uh, their religion, but not just their religion. Um, um, so, the I mean, I, I would say, you know, the the, the, the biggest threat to um, uh, human right action is not the danger of selfishness, though, of course, that's a problem, but the danger of misplaced loyalties.
0: Mm. That's Sorry, I'm starting to preach now. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm. Go ahead. I'm open to whatever. Mm. That's, that's an interesting concept. I was, mm. uh, I was just reading uh, The Black Swam by uh, Nassim Tlaib, Taleb, and uh, he's talking about the formation of nation states and how easy it right. was to just draw mm. a line, give people a flag and a yes. national anthem, and then suddenly very fiercely defensive of, uh, of, of just this arbitrary quality. Does, yes. that, does that the fact that we are um even those of us who are conscious of this mm. we are still uh very uh, like we're, we're creatures on this planet and we're mm. are are we're trying to reason um mm. our, our way to some kind of ethics but don't you think that that's an approach that is going to fail when we take into account the fact that we are, like barely more than apes? Well, I mean, yeah, there is an issue there and
1: you're right. I mean, it's a problem for what I've been saying so far because I've been talking about you know, human beings as communal beings and that's, that's what shapes our values. Uh, but as I've also said, um, the problem is that people identify themselves with partial exclusive communities and the strength of that community too often resides in who it excludes as much as who it includes. Right. So um, yes, the you know the problem of um, um, identity by exclusion is 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 a big problem for human ethics. That's right. Um, so I mean, I mean, I suppose if you like, it's as you were suggesting, a feature of our evolutionary ancestry that we derive from um, 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 our eight black ancestors were lived in groups um, and identification with a group was an important part of their their being, their biological being. Um, so, So in talking about the human aesthetic, I suppose, well, quite certainly what we need to emphasize also is the growing recognition of our common humanity, which I think you can, you know, you can look at historically and take encouragement from the extent to which as human societies become more and more interlinked. I mean, I suppose if you like, this is the you know, this is the positive side of, of, of globalization that um, people are in contact with human beings from a whole diversity of societies now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, recognition of the humanity of the other, in one sense, comes more naturally or or is much more accessible to us now. If you look at, um, you know, the history of uh, war and colonialism and imperialism and so on, um, and the... um, the demonization of the other as less than human that becomes more and more difficult to do when our lives bring us into contact and relationship with other human beings from different cultures so much more. I talked about Aristotle just now, and I think he's a very instructive example, because on the one hand, he's got this very strong recognition of um, values and ethics being rooted in our nature as human beings and what we need in order to function effectively as human beings. But of course, also notoriously Aristotle said dreadful things about the superiority of Greeks to non-Greeks. He argued for the idea that barbarians are by nature slaves because they possess reason to a lesser degree than than Greeks do. And he said some terrible things about women um, in the the same vein. Uh, And it's always struck me how, how, You know, how this this great intellect with this great insight, uh, not only into human ethics, but one of the greatest philosophical thinkers there ever was, was at the same time trapped in the mindset of his own society and his own culture. And that contradiction within his thought, I think, is very instructive and um, something we all need to be aware of.
0: Yeah, I, I guess on that note, do you think then that nation states are an obstacle to humanism?
1: Certainly can be. Yes, okay. yes, um, yeah, yes, yeah. Do you, do you, um,
0: sure. do you, do, what? What do you have in mind? What do you, I, I suppose what, what I'm what I'm asking is mm-hmm. when w- we are because you know these borders, uh, mm-hmm. whether or not you. Your opinion on how we, you yes. know, manage them—they mm. are arbitrary. Like we, we have to yes. admit that. I mean, yes, in Los Angeles, that's you know, it, it is in Spanish. It's originally part of what is now Mexico, yes. and yes. Um, mm. but people get very fiercely defensive of it, and it becomes an obstacle to recognizing each other's humanity. And right. it, it seems like this fierce nationalism is one of the. uh, trend lines in our uh society today that yes is- well
1: you've yes i mean you've seen the if i may say so the nasty side of that in in the states yes all too recently um, yeah. yes. uh, and we don't need to <laughs> don't need to um invoke the quote mm. of course wow well, yes yeah, mm. so, I- and i think also yes i mean i think we increasingly it's the case that the 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 big problems that face us today are the problems that face us as a human community. Um, most obviously problems about climate change and the destruction of the natural environment, which we have no hope of tackling effectively uh, unless um, we all transcend national boundaries, national borders um, and, and uh, work work, work, on, work on them at a global level, tackle them. Globally, internationally.
0: And let me ask you this. Do you think there are any, um, there, there's anything out there that someone could do that, uh, besides things like, uh, fasting during Ramadan or, um, Mm. uh, you know, uh, going to confession, things like that, besides like the rituals of a given religion, Mm. is there anything Mm. that without a God, um, It becomes moral that would be immoral if there was a god does that do you see what i'm asking
1: well i think so yes i mean there are there are a lot of um, controversial moral issues about which people disagree where to some extent the fault lines coincide with the division between humanists and the religious but again as I said earlier, it's very important not to stereotype religious positions. I mean, famously, um, um, the acceptance of gay sexuality um, has been hugely obstructed by some of the world religions, some strands in some of the world religions. You know, if, just to take the case of Christianity. Um, um, for a long time, you had to be a very brave Christian to say you know, gay people are um you know to be accepted as just um uh, and you know the love of gay people is just as valuable and just as just as acceptable uh, and morally acceptable as human love in general um that within the christian with it, well, again, it's dangerous to, to generalize about the Christian churches. Within some of the Christian churches, that battle has been won or is being won. In others, it hasn't. Um, so it's not exactly an example of what you're asking, is it? It's not, you know, one can't quite straightforwardly say, well, that's morally acceptable if you're a humanist, but it's morally unacceptable if you're religious. It's not as, not as simple as that. But that's an important part of the story. Another example, um, one of the things that um, humanist organizations, humanist groups campaign for strongly, um, and where we haven't yet won the battle in in the UK, is the legalization of of assisted dying. When people are terminally ill, suffering terribly, Um, compassion says if they're you know, just asking, desperately asking, you help them to end it all. They just don't want to go on suffering. Um, the, the, I mean, for almost all humanists, I think the right thing to, to do would be um, help them end their suffering, take pity on them. Right. Um, now, I know I, um, in in some states in the US, that's now legal um permissible isn't it and others not i don't know how it is in california i know oregon was one of the um pioneer states wasn't it on well
0: oregon yeah i don't think it's 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 crossed over in california yet uh,
1: no no
0: but that, again that's a, that's another example um and again
1: um, it doesn't coincide simply and straightforwardly with the fault line between humanists and the religious. Um, But it's still the case, actually, that a lot of um, spokespeople for the established church in this country resolutely set their face against the legalization of assisted dying, and certainly the the Roman Catholic Church does. Some of the other Christian uh, denominations are um, more open-minded about it um, and recognize that it's a matter for human choice. Of course, nobody is gonna say, you have to ask for assisted dying, but if, if, If that's how people choose to try to cope with end of life suffering, it's it's their life and it's their choice. And that's what humanists would say. Uh, But there's a certain strand in Christianity which says no, life is the gift of God. And therefore, um, however desperately someone um, wants their life to end because all they've got to look forward to is agonizing suffering, um, they don't have a right to say so.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, there There are two things that I was thinking of, uh, as you were saying that the one is, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the Seneca quote, which is talking about the end of life. And yes. he's like, don't, you don't have to drink every last drop of wine in your glass. Yes. Like, don't, yes. don't be greedy. <laughs>
1: like, yes, the, the Stoics are very enlightened about this. That's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And.
0: Also, um, like in my experience, I went to a, a Catholic high school and we had a classmate of mm-hmm. ours, uh, commit suicide the summer before our senior year. And yeah. that message of, you know, this is not just a sin, but this mm-hmm. person's going to hell. And it's like, this yeah. is a 17 year old boy. Yeah. He's a yeah. child and mm-hmm. they handled mm-hmm. it really poorly. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, I, I think people have those kinds of experiences, uh, with organized religion that turns them yes. off in a major way. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yes, just to use the language of sin in that context. I mean, of course, you know, suicide in general typically is a terrible tragedy. Yeah. But the, the language of sin is not, not the appropriate
0: language. Yes. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say maybe like it's a mistake, um, in, in at least in in those kind of cases, but mm-hmm. uh, did were you always this way? Were you always a, a born humanist? Uh, did you have no human- no no no? I mean, very much not. Um, I.
1: I. I grew up. Well, I grew up as a Christian, really, for the tw- first twenty years of, of my life. Yeah. Um, my. I mean, my, it's interesting, the attitude of my parents, and I, I increasingly became aware of this, I guess. I think my, my parents became increasingly doubtful of um, any, any religious faith, but they, certainly my mother, thought it would be wonder, a wonderful thing if one could have a religious faith. Yeah. So I went to Sunday school, I went to church, Um, and I, yes, I I was very religiously, so to speak, went to, you know, went, went, went to church and took it very, very seriously. But I mean, I took it seriously to the extent that I gave a lot of thought to it. It was a very important part of my life. It wasn't just a superficial part of my life. So I became also very engrossed in trying to think it through, um, and increasingly came to recognize that. When I tried to think it through, actually, I couldn't defend it rationally. Mm. Um, it was a bit of a wrench. I mean, it, you know, it, um, uh, I suppose the decisive thing that made me recognize that really I was a humanist was, as so often happens, uh, going to college, meeting new people, um, forming new relationships. New, joining new communities and in coming to recognize that though um, the religious community, which had been a very important part of my life until then, although it had been a very important part of my life till then, when I, if I were to try to explain that to people from a very different cultural context, there's no way in which I could um, justify it and make it rationally um, convincing to them. Mm. So, so if you like, you know, like once I, you know, from within that um, membership of a religious community and that religious perspective, my, the question always for me was, how can I justify it? You know, once I meet new people and think, look at it from their perspective and think what would they make of it? I came to realize actually, you know, um, only, you know, from within it may make no sense from that, from, but from the outside, um, you can't really make a rational case
0: for it. Interesting. That's uh, it do you feel at, in making this transition um, when we were talking about post-truth in the beginning mm-hmm. of this, um, yes. do you feel like it is harder to defend the idea of truth with a capital T or at least mm-hmm. our ability to, to grasp it um, w- when you no longer have this sort of like solid notion of a creator god and now we're just a bunch of human beings making these interpretations
1: well it's interesting that you you said truth with a capital t um yes what as a humanist what um um what i'm wedded to is not the truth but um the search for um beliefs and ideas which we for which we can give reasons. Um, um, rationality is at the heart of it. But again, it's not ration, you know, rationality is something abstract with a capital R. Um, what it means for me as a humanist is that one should be able to give reasons for one's one's beliefs reasons for one's ideas and one's attitudes. Um, And I think that links up with what we were saying earlier about community. Um, um, Adequate beliefs are those that you can justify to other people on shared grounds. So um, it's it's never enough just to say, well, these are the beliefs of my community and that's good enough for me. Right. Uh, The challenge is always, I think, um, how, one, how could one defend those those beliefs um, to other people who who don't necessarily come from the same starting point as you? Uh,
0: a lot of people, or a lot of philosophers, though, mm. who uh, I don't know if they would describe themselves as humanists, but they would certainly be atheistic. I'm thinking of people like Foucault and other postmodernist yeah. thinkers. Yes,
1: yes. Um,
0: Try to sort of. And I forget the guy's name, but he was one of these uh, French postmodernists who who regretted yes. what they had done to the concept of truth and said that yes. you know we've mm. made it out to be just a series of endless interpretations and yes um, yes you know that can mm. lead to things like climate change denialism of like hey you're just what do your That's models right. mean after all um, yes do yeah you, do you see that yes. as a philosophical problem yes I do
1: I mean I have to say that you know my own. You know, philosophical work has not been within that tradition. Um, you know, I've read little bits of postmodernism, but I, yeah. you know, I see it as, uh, I, I mean, I guess its day has passed, it's no longer as trendy as it used to be, but, um, yeah. you know, I see it as a very, uh, and saw it as a very worrying tendency, precisely because it seems to jettison the idea of truth, uh, and ends up with a kind of relativism that, that you know, truth um, is internal to particular discourses, and Um, I mean, in the end, it just flies in the face of our human experience of the fact that we communicate with one another. Um, I think that strand, it always seems to me that that philosophical strand is a kind of relativism. Uh, And the the decisive refutation of it is precisely the paradox of of relativism, Um, that people who argue for postmodernism or relativism or whatever it is, argue for it as true. Right, they don't argue for it as just you, my discourse. Yeah, they say, you know, no, this is this is right. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that's not just an ad, hom- ad hominem point. Um, you know, when, whenever one tries to articulate any intellectual position, you're trying to articulate it in ways that make it plausible from an you know, impartial standpoint, not just plausible to those who share one's own discourse.
0: And you say it's had its day, and maybe it has in the academy, but it feels like uh, outside, uh, particularly within a lot of activist circles who Mm -hmm. I'm either affiliated with or I'm sympathetic to, um, Mm -hmm. use these kinds of concepts of, um, say, like, you know, how can you, like, my lived experience, uh, Mm -hmm. these sort of phrases, where I can right. kind of get where they're coming from, but it also sounds to me like here's yes. anecdotes. Believe this instead of data. Um, you, yeah. does that yes, that? that's
1: interesting, isn't it? There's a lot of, lot of tricky issues here, aren't there? I mean, I suppose, you know, identity politics, that kind of thing, yes. Right. Um, and yes, I don't have a simple answer to that, um, because as you say, when people appeal to their lived experience, as a starting point, that's incredibly important. Um, you know, that's that's where all of our values and our ethics and our politics should start from. You know, real experience rather than abstract ideologies or, or, or whatever. But you can't just stop with lived experience, can you? That's the problem. You know, once you start to try to articulate that lived experience, then you necessarily, I think, you are you know, unless you put up sort of arbitrary barriers, you're drawn into trying to articulate um, that lived experience um, in a way that will make sense to other people. Right. Um, um, You know, I suppose, you know, issues in a whole range of issues in the area of sexuality start out from lived experience. And, you know, too often people have um, failed to try to understand the lived experience of gay people or trans people or whatever. So it's crucially important to do that. Um, but then the question is, where do you go from there right. um, in drawing your conclusions from it? And to go you know, to advance, you then have to, I would have thought, um, look at what we share um, and look at how people ought to respond to other people's lived experience and what that lived experience is demanding from other people who don't have that experience. think also actually, I mean just <laughs> this does link up with something we were talking about earlier, the importance of um, literature for humanists, because of course um, literature is a fundamental way in which we can get inside the lived experience of people different from ourselves. That's the great value of the novel, poetry, and so on, that it um, makes real to us experiences that we may not have you know, had directly. So, you know, a novel about, let's say, the experience of being an uh, asylum seeker or a, uh, an economic migrant or whatever. Um, it's not something that I've experienced at first hand. Right. But by reading novels written from that perspective. I can come to understand what it would be like. Um, uh, and an important fact, the important thing is, isn't it, that you know that, that is possible. We can come to other st- understand other people's lived experience when it's made real for us, because it's articulated in terms that draw on our common humanity. So, we, so that we can see, yes, you know, um, if you're an immigrant arriving in a strange country, yes, it, you know, it would be... You know, all these things would be humiliating. These things would be um, debasing. These things would be confusing, and 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 it must be terrible to be faced with that kind of thing. We can come to understand other people's lived experience when it's articulated. Um, sorry, I, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent. No, there, no, not at all. This know. was I... on, on the on the um, the issue of post truth. Isn't it? you you are making the very. Uh, the very important point that even if philosophically um, that kind of relativistic postmodernism is less in vogue now, there are analogues of it um, in important important, um, attitudes that people still have, which need to be taken seriously, but...
0: Well, that's when you're talking about the the ability to empathize and understand other people's lived experiences, Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree with that. There are within that certain like sex of the, the activist uh, left are, are mm-hmm. people who say that, um, you know, I was reading this article recently in the New York Times about like the end of empathy, where they're saying, like oh, right. you know, mm-hmm. hey, how, how can you uh, like, you know, you're, you're telling me that, oh, you understand what it's like to be a, a single black mother from reading, mm-hmm. you know, this book. And like absolutely not, like it's a it's a whole you know life story. But yes, um, mm. do, do you see what I'm getting at? I mean, there are people who are, or it feels like they're trying to fracture this sense of empathy. Yes,
1: yes, yes. I can see what, very much so, and I can see the danger. Yes, I mean, there's a truism, of course, isn't there, that you can't experience other people's experience. Right. Um, I mean, and, you know, therefore, in one sense, of course, I can never in one sense, I can never understand what it would be to be a single black mother because I'm not a single black mother. And it's a very different world from 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 mine. But that doesn't mean to say that it's a totally closed book to me. Right. Um, And the more successfully people can help me to understand what it would be like, uh, the better for all of us. Um, so it's you know, so so the, the article the limits to empathy. what what were the conclusions that were being drawn in there? Um, they
0: they were basically discussing um, certain uh, certain thinkers within like the current literary establishment or in, or in publishing who were suggesting right. that, um, you know, like uh, for instance, uh, how how could, um, a white writer ever write about um, a, a non-white character let's mm-hmm. say um, mm-hmm. because hey you don't have that lived experience but then you can mm-hmm. extrapolate that and say hey well how can a man yeah. ever include a story about a woman you know exactly
1: That's it's cool. just what I was going to say yes just what I was going to say yes yeah yeah and if you look at the great novelists I mean you know often um, you know they're supreme examples of, I mean I've referred to the, to, to Thomas Hardy earlier, um, Hardy's um, portrayal of female characters. Well, I mean, you know, I was going to say, Hardy's um, portrayal of female characters is wonderful. Now, of course, someone might come back at me and say, well, how do you know yeah. because you're yeah. not a woman? Yeah, just, <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah, we just reach an impasse, but. Um, um... Or, or Virginia yeah. Woolf's yes.
0: depiction of, of men. Is, is something that I, I feel is true. I mean, I can mm-hmm. see where, like, it, mm. it does not strike me as, oh, this is someone who's describing an alien creature and just doesn't mm. understand, exactly. yes. you know? That's right, yes,
1: um, quite, yeah. So I mean, um, the, yeah, the, uh, the logical conclusion of all of this would be nobody can ever understand anybody. Right, um, yes. Yeah. Um, but of course you know our whole struggle is a struggle to understand other, uh, other people um, and we do it um through you know through the arts through literature uh, and through everyday conversation um you know e- everyday dialogue um is all you know just just talking to people in the street how are you today um um oh sorry to hear that you had some problems and so forth um it's all all one with that same exercise of coming to understand what it's like for other people and um, the truism that we can never fully be fully successful in that enterprise. Um, um, it's, it's disastrous if that suggests to us that we should never try because that way lies madness. Yes
0: absolutely um and and i wanted to make sure i asked you before we um before we go um Ooh. are you familiar with um the uh, it's mostly online but they call themselves the rationalist community or has that reached your doorstep at all
1: um well tell me tell me what you're referring to because um, the, yeah, yeah there, you some,
0: go ahead. There, there are um you know several uh, fairly prominent uh, authors and bloggers, people like Slate Star Codex, which was, you know, one of those featured in the New York Times recently, and um, and in that article they talk about this rationalist community where mm-hmm. um, these are people who are trying to, uh, you know, like one example is looking at uh, how to maximize charitable giving. And instead of, say, uh, Mm -hmm. going to, uh, in in this person's example, and I'm not saying I necessarily agree with it, instead of going Mm -hmm. to a protest, uh, Mm -hmm. give, you know, $100 to this um, group that's providing malaria medicine in Africa, and you'll save, you know, 100 lives or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And and purely applying these sort of um, rational-minded techniques. And and the reason I asked you uh, about it is because I was curious your thoughts on the idea of a community that calls itself rationalists. Um, It's kind of a lofty name.
1: Well, yes. I mean, within the humanist tradition, the label rationalist
0: is very much an honored
1: label. Um, But what's crucial here, I think, is to avoid that false dichotomy between reason and emotion, reason and feeling, reason and empathy. I mean, they're absolutely intertwined. Um, And any Satisfactory human life has to be built on the combination of um, um, fellow feeling, empathy, um, recognition of what other people feel and other people's experience, and at the same time, um, um, uh, rational thought about how to put that into practice. So, the the your example of um, um, applying. Rational judgments to the question of how most effectively to you know, meet meet the needs of um, you know, how to combat the problems of global injustice. Yes, of course, you know we have to th- you know, have to uh, our rationalist approach to how to do that most effectively. Um, is is absolutely essential, but the question how to do it effectively doesn't even arise unless there is that starting point of responsiveness to the needs of others um, and um, uh, ultimately uh, an empathetic awareness of what it's like for other people who are starving or living in poverty or... um, um, Faced with um, problems of um, uncontrolled disease or whatever, so uh, the the idea of a of a divide between the rational approach and the empathetic approach mm. um, is is disastrous, I think. Definitely. And I suppose also, you know, thinking about your example, then um, you know it would be important if you're thinking about how most effectively to you know, to meet meet and you know problems of um, um, poverty and disease across the world. Um, um, if it becomes too much as a matter of rational calculation, um, then you're in danger, I guess, of um, of neglecting or destroying other people's empathetic response. Um, so, you know, if... Um, you know, if someone is moved to um, what should we say um, if someone is moved to work um, work in a soup kitchen right um, trying to help you know, the people on on in their neighborhood who are um, you know, in desperate need um, to say to them oh, you do much better to just um, 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 save up your money and donate it to um, this and that. This this particular, uh, I, I don't know what, charity, what example. Yeah. But you know, do, do donate your money. Um, but of course, you you what you risk there is killing the impulse that drives them in the first place. No, it may be oh, right that yeah. running a running a soup kitchen may not be the best way to do it. But if 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 that's what develops that person's responsiveness and awareness then that itself is something valuable
0: i i love that i haven't heard that counter argument to, to it before but it because it feels wrong to say to someone hey you know why are you doing why are you at a soup kitchen when you could be yeah. you know yes. giving micro loans to farmers yes. Yes. guys yes. To yes
1: yes yeah you yeah know. sure
0: that's right uh, the we're almost at an hour here, so I, I don't want to take up any more of your time. The the last thing I wanted to ask you is um, are, are you hopeful about the future of humanism given all the problems that we've been talking about?
1: I'm hopeful, but not naively hopeful. <laughs> I mean we <laughs> we we face huge problems and sometimes sometimes I despair. Well, no, sometimes I am prone to despair. Right. Um if I You know, if I and and this comes back to some of the issues that we started with when you talked about, you know, um, a post-truth era and so on. We don't live in a post-truth era, but we live in an era when a lot of people live and behave as though it were post-truth. And yes, there are politically and morally terribly depressing things going on. exacerbated, we haven't talked about this, but um, it's one of the things that's lurked behind this conversation, exacerbated by the rise of social media and the way I think that links up with what we were saying about closed communities and so on, uh, and the way in which that promotes a certain kind of irrationality. Um, Huge problems there, huge problems also um, at an environmental level, um, issues of climate change, and the kinds of changes that they require in the way of life of all of us and the way in which we conduct our economic affairs. Um, um, I think it's very easy to despair, Um, but as a humanist, I think you just have to, to look back at history, look at the terrible challenges that human beings have faced in the past, and it's never been easy, and it's never been simple, straightforward, and there's no simple forward march of humanity. Um, Nothing like that. But nevertheless, we can take inspiration from the struggles of human beings in in the past who have stuck to humanist values um, and have done so in the face of terrible and huge challenges and uh, and have won through.
0: I I think that's a good note to end on. Richard, is there anything um, you is is there like a website where people can reach you at? uh, A particular book that you think people should check out of yours? Um, Well, um, I don't have a website. No, I
1: mean I have a book called On Humanism, which (laughs) um, (laughs) I'd be very happy for people to read. Um, And I would um, encourage people to. I mean, you know, in this country, the Humanist UK website is a is a hugely useful resource and there are one or two things of mine on there as well but it's you know it's a great resource and and you know in 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 the states I know there are other equally valuable resources as well Um, so um, can I just say in conclusion that I think the conversation we've been having is a very good example of the way in which we all need to um, um, share our thoughts learn from one another and that's what gives me hope that we don't just live in a post-truth world, but we're, we're grappling for truth together through dialogue and discussion.
0: There we go. <laughs> That's what we're hoping for. All right. Uh, thank you again for your time. Thank you And uh, I, I agree. Uh, I think this was a great conversation. So uh, have a great rest of your day and appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. All, All right. right. Bye bye. Take care. Thank you to Richard Norman and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Ducking Yammy. See you next time.